quite a lot when the Bible talks about angels. Um, should, can I give you just a few Bible verses? That way we can actually see what the Bible itself says. The Bible says that angels, in uh, Hebrews 1.14, it says, Are not angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? So ministering spirits. Um, we have talked a couple times about how many angels there are. Some uh, In Revelation 5.11, it says that they are numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. So millions and millions and hundreds of millions, which is not very specific, but lots. So um, angels have been known in the Bible to appear in the form of humans. Uh, for example, in Hebrews 13.2, do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Um, some people wonder, do we become angels when we die? And the Bible says, no. Uh, Psalms 80, uh, Psalm 8, 4 and 5 says, What is man that you are mindful of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. God has made angels and humans distinct. Uh, they are different creations, uh, inasmuch as, as horses and cows are completely distinct creatures. God made them different. Um, who's in charge of the angels? According to 1 Peter 3.22, it says, And now Christ is in heaven, sitting in the place of honor next to the God the Father, with all the angels and powers of heaven, bowing before him and obeying him. So Christ is the head of the angels. Another place it says, The prince of the hosts of heaven. So Jesus is in charge of the angels. Matthew 18.10 uh, says that angels are special guardians. Jesus says, beware that you don't look down upon a single one of these little children, for I tell you that in heaven their angels have constant access to my Father. Uh, and then Psalm 34, 7 tells us that angels are guarding and protecting us. For the angel of the Lord guards and rescues all who reverence him. In Psalms 103, we find that angels are God's um, gophers. <laughs> they, they do what God asks them to do. Um, bless the Lord, you mighty angels of his who carry out his orders, listening for each of his commands. Yes, bless the Lord, you armies of his angels who serve him constantly. Um, so angels, they do God's bidding, but they also carry messages from God, like the one that came to Mary when he said that she would be um, with child uh, by the Holy Spirit. It says, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. This is uh, the same angel. But uh, to the shepherds, they were terrified, but the angel said, Don't be afraid, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. And then in Matthew 16 and 17, it, it describes a role the angels will play in the second coming. It says that they, the Son of Man is going to come with the Father's glory and all the angels. And then in Matthew 24, 31, it says, And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four corners of the earth. Now, a question that you have to ask when you talk about angels is, what about, what about the evil angels? Where did they come from? And we found that the last, was it last night or the night before? Last night, yeah, we did. Revelation 12, 9. The great dragon was hurled down, the ancient serpent called the devil and Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Um, now, what influence do evil angels have? What can they do? Well, the, the whole point is that they struggle against good. Uh, Ephesians 6.12 says, We struggle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and against powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There's a spiritual war that's going on for our hearts, and the evil angels are 
in the, in the mix trying to mess with us. Matthew 24, 25-41 uh, points to the final uh, destiny of these evil angels. And it says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So there is an end that God has in mind. So just a little bit about angels in the Bible. There's lots and lots more, but that's a, a rough outline. Um, now, we have the privilege of giving something away tonight. This is um, a Bible-marking device. And, and basically what it does is um, it connects with, um, with certain topics um, in the Bible. And you have like this uh, uh, guide that you put in the beginning of your Bible. And it gives you the first verse on any kind of subject like uh, creation or the authority of the Bible or the origin of evil. Um, prophecies of the Messiah, um, all kinds of different uh, subjects. And you just go to that first verse, and then um, in, in that list of topics or, or Bible verses that you have here, you just put the next one, and then you go to that, that verse that indicates, and you stick the next one. These are little stickers that stay in your Bible. So you can quickly find a, a Bible subject that you want to study and go through some of the major uh, Bible verses about that. So who are we going to be giving this cool tool to? Well, I'm going to apologize first if I gave your last name wrong. It's Jeff Niemeyer. Oh, I think that's Neumeyer. Neumeyer. Is that how you say it? Jeff, right over here. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Can you take that to him? We've got a couple more of those if you want one. Um, go ahead and grab one if you want to put a donation in the question box. That just helps us cover the cost. But um, They're a, a fun resource if you're doing a Bible study or you want to share the Bible with somebody else. All right, well, tonight's subject is the ultimate mind game. And we get to peel back the layers in that battle. I think this is a guy in the back corner, about. but I don't know the that for sure. Powers, right? what, what Satan is doing. And we get to find out the weak points of Satan's plan. Um, now, the Thursday night, we are off, but on Friday night, we get to talk about the coming of the lawless one, the first in the trilogy of, of talks. This one starting in 2 Thessalonians and looking at the kind of beginning of the Antichrist message or Antichrist question that we'll end up with in Revelation 13 sometime next week. On Saturday night, Revelation's sign of God kind of um, goes to that next step. And tonight we're looking at the first half of Revelation 14, but Saturday night we get to look at the second half. And we get to see kind of the, uh, well, really God's response. Uh, Revelation 12, remember we talked about this chiasm thing? Um, that's the middle of Revelation is really the, the most important stuff that's going on. And so Revelation 12 introduces this cosmic battle between good and evil between Christ and Satan, and uh, and then Revelation 13 is the dragon and uh, all this stuff that he's doing, all the machinations of the, of the dragon. Revelation 14 is what God is doing, and so tonight we get to start with a little bit of that. Saturday night we get to go into more detail. Sunday night we're going to look at a passage that many people think is in the Bible, and we get to ask, is it really there? And I think that we're going to wrap up um, some of this subject from the middle of Revelation um, on Sunday night and answer some other interesting questions that connect with Revelation 13. Uh, but then on Tuesday night, we're going to do, um, oops, that was Sunday night, Revelation's Forgotten History. 
Um, on Tuesday night, a river runs through it. There's this theme that goes from Genesis to Revelation, and it, it talks about this river, a river of life. And uh, there's a benefit that you and I can have. Something about understanding this subject gives us an opportunity for happiness that we wouldn't have otherwise. On Wednesday, that's when we get to dive into Revelation 13, and we get to, to uh, really explore the subject of the Antichrist and what in the world that is. And like I've said before, when we get to the end of that message, you're going to tell me what it is. I won't even need to say it. And then next Friday night, um, we're going to explore this question, what happens a minute after you take your last breath? When you die, what do you do? What happens then? And the Bible has a lot of good resources to help us understand that, and it's fairly clear about what happens when we die. So tonight, the ultimate <coughs> mind game, and I'd like to start with prayer. Father in heaven, we are here again, uh, here to study your word, and we need your help. I need your help uh, to communicate effectively. I need your spirit to uh, guide my lips. And so I pray that you forgive my sin and let my words be something that glorifies you. And I pray that you would be with all of us as we listen, that we wouldn't just be uh, casual hearers, but that we would be those that apply your word and let it change our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Tonight I want to start with another important principle. Um, when you read through uh, a book, you know, I mentioned this idea of the chiasm. You expect, typically, the end to be the big idea. But here in Revelation, this is the, the, the pinnacle, the climax is right in the middle. And what we're looking at tonight is the, it's the ultimate battlefield in Revelation. Because Revelation talks a lot about war and battles and, and interesting uh, scenarios, right? Beasts and dragons and stuff. And, uh, and it seems like there's a lot of like bloodshed. Read Revelation 17 and you find some um, lady that's got a cup of blood, right? There's just all kinds of weird stuff about war. And, and right here in Revelation 14, we find what that battlefield really is. And I want, to, I want to tell you this, it's not in the Middle East. The battle is, well, right in this room. And we'll, we'll explore that in just a minute. But one of the major points um, that, that we find is this, um, everything is, is focused on these center uh, chapters. Build up towards it and, and kind of everything after Revelation 14 kind of points back to what's going on in these three chapters. Um, so, when you look at this uh, chiasm, the, the very important stuff that we're going to find is right here in the first several verses of Revelation 14. Um, and this is the battlefield, I think, that the Bible is describing. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. Now you might be tempted to think, well, that's where they get the harps and the you know, floating in the clouds thing for heaven. Well, 
that's not exactly where John's focus is. Uh, when you look at this, you have this group of people, and notice how they, they are described as virgins. Sexual purity is somehow connected to this uh, spiritual purity. And, and it's, not, it's not that these are perfect people, because notice that it says they're redeemed. Uh, but there's a, there's a purity in their lives spiritually. What is that purity? Well, it's, it's a gift, a gift from Jesus. They, they were sinners just like you and me. These people that seem to be perfect are not, have not always been perfect. And, and so the big question, well, let's just keep reading, actually. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. You see it? Without fault. They're, it's like they're perfect. And uh, notice, notice how it says they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Who's the Lamb? Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They were redeemed. Their sin has been taken away. And so they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Back in John 17, 6, Jesus said, I have manifested your name, talking about the Father, to these disciples. In other words, he's shown them God's name. And right here in Revelation, we find that they follow the Lamb wherever he goes, and they have the Father's name imprinted in their forehead. Is this some tattoo, you know, some special Hebrew letters? No. What Jesus describes is what he's talking about. God's character is in his name. In Exodus 33, Moses asks God if he can see his glory. And God says, sure. And he puts him in the like a, a little section of the rock, a, a crag or something in the rock. Puts his hand in front of Moses. This is what Exodus describes. And then he says, it, he passes before him and lets Moses see his back. Um, but you don't ever hear any description of God. Instead, what you hear is God telling you about his character. And it says that he proclaimed his name. And he, he says things like that, that he is um, holy and just and good, forgiving iniquity and things like this. And so when it says that, he, that, that these people have the Father's name written in their foreheads, what do you think it means? Is it just some special tattoo, or, or is there something in the mind that's been transformed? I think it's the character. I think it's that God's character has been imprinted inside the mind. Now, where, what part of your mind do you reason with? What part of your mind do you engage with thinking? It, it's right here behind your forehead, isn't it? It's your frontal lobe. And, and so this is where God interacts with us. This is where God has the opportunity to connect with us. This is where prayers come from. This is where um, God speaks to us as we open his word. This is where the Holy Spirit convicts us and prompts us and challenges us, right? That, that voice in your head that says, this is the way, walk in it. Or don't go down that road, that's not the right path. Your conscience, that's where God speaks is right there in your frontal lobe. And here, it says that they have that they have the Father's name in their forehead, and there's no deceit in their mouth, because God's character is in their minds. 
And, and look at this in Romans chapter 7, verse 25. Paul says, so then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God. There, there's a choice that's there. We get to choose. Do I follow God or not? Do I allow God to be the Lord of my life or do I say I'm going to do it on my own? We get to choose. And it's these people standing on Mount Zion with the Lamb, following Him wherever He goes, that they have chosen the Father's name. They have chosen to have God imprint His character in their minds. And, and in, in a real sense, the Bible says that, that we're saved when we believe. Believe. In a very real sense, that believing is a choice. It's not just some magical thing that happens and, and finally you, you, you've got this like emotional connection and you're like, oh, I believe now. No, no, there's a choice involved. And these people, the ones that are on this mountain, that are following the land, that have no deceit in their mouth, that have the Father's name on their foreheads, they believe. They believe that God is everything that he ever claimed to be. And, and so God says, these are my people because they believe. But the big question is, how do we get to be in their, in their shoes? How do we get that way? Now, could somebody please grab a question card uh, before the night is out and, and jot a question down about this? Because I think it'd be fun to explore. A lot of people think that this group of people, of 144,000, are literally 144,000 people that come from the um, 12 different tribes of Israel. And that, that this whole scenario is about literal virgin men who are somewhere in the Middle East. And it completely disconnects from real, the, the real story of Revelation. Um, and I want to explore that idea with you. So if you put a question in, I'll definitely make sure to answer that. And if you don't put a question in, I might still answer it. But right now, we need to move on. We need to, we need to explore this, this group of people. How do we get to be part of that group? How do we, how, how can we have that experience with God? So let's, uh, let's look at a few of these things. Um, the first John 1, 9 is the most significant thing that we can look at. And, and it's, we have to remember how God works with us. And this is review. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How do we become faultless before the throne of God? It's through Jesus. It's, it's through his forgiveness. When we confess, he forgives and cleanses. And when we're cleansed, we're faultless. God sees us and he says, perfect. And when the Bible says, be ye perfect, even as my Father in heaven is perfect, this is what it's talking about. How do we become perfect? We confess. We fess up. God, I messed up. Please forgive me. And you know what God says? He will forgive you all your sins. He will forgive you and cleanse you. And in that, in that moment, you are absolutely, completely perfect in front of God's throne. Because Jesus, his life, his death is covering your sin. All right, so um, you say, I understand that. That's, that. That makes sense and stuff. But... Uh, but I've gone too far. God can't forgive me. How powerless do you think God is? Is he a, a peon that, that only has a little bit of power? No, this is the God of creation, the God of the universe, the God that holds everything together, the one who created life and sustains it. Do you think that God is weak? No. 
And there is nothing that you can do that puts you beyond God's ability to save. And the fact that you would even think of that, like, oh, I don't think I could be saved, illustrates that you actually have some interest in that, that you have an interest in God being your Redeemer. And if you're worried, then I'm not worried. Because it's, it's when you stop caring, that's when there's a problem. But as long as you care, there's always hope. Because God is powerful. Even this idea of confessing, it's a gift from God. The Bible tells us it's, it's something that we get as a gift. And so if you feel like, hey, I've got a problem, then that's a gift. That's the, that's the Holy Spirit kind of nudging you, bump, punching your arm a bit, uh, pricking you and saying, hey, there's a problem here. Let's, let's work. You know, let's, let's have a conversation about this. You need to confess something. That's a gift from God. And when he, when he gives us the, the gift of forgiveness, the Bible tells us that we're no, no longer the same. We're different. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That's the promise of forgiveness. You were dead in your sins, but now you're alive in Christ. Your old life was sinful and evil, but now you've been born again, like Jesus said to Nicodemus. Uh, Nicodemus is, is asking this question about the kingdom of God, and, and Jesus says, if you want to be part of God's kingdom, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus was like, what, you have to be born again? Does that mean I have to go back inside my mother? How does that work? And Jesus says, no, you're born of the water and of the spirit. There's a new birth experience that God invites us into. What is a creature? It says you're a new creation. What is a, or a new creature? What is a creature? A creature is something that's created, isn't it? Now, do you create yourself? <laughs> no, we are not self-existent. We are created beings, and uh, if not, your mother and father um, go all the way back to Adam, and you'll find that your father is God himself. You are created by God, and, and there's, there's this promise that he's going to recreate you. We're, we're created in brokenness and sin, but God's promise is that when we confess and we believe that he will make us new creatures. He will do a creative thing in you. And if you're like, but, but I still, you know, I've, I've, I've been saved, I've confessed my sins, I've been forgiven and all, but I still struggle with temptation, and I still keep doing stuff that I shouldn't. And, uh, well, the reason is because we all have temptation. We all struggle. Um, the, the things that you deal with are things that are common to mankind, to everybody. But then we have Paul, who says, oh, I skipped one. It's not in there. <laughs> I have it in here, but I don't have it on the screen. It's 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Paul says, no temptation has, has uh, overtaken you except what is common to man. In other words, whatever you're struggling with, someone else is struggling too. And, and God promises that there's a way out of that temptation there in 2 Corinthians 10, 13. 
Becoming a Christian doesn't mean you've arrived. That suddenly you're like, oh, perfect, I'm never going to sin again. Some people think that the, the whole baptism thing is this magical experience where before you're baptized, you're bad, and then you get dumped under water and you come up and now you're good. Um, you've arrived. But that's not exactly how it works. There's this maturing and growing experience and, and the constant struggle that, uh, that we're uncovering in Revelation. There's something going on, a battle going on for your mind. Romans 7 describes this constant struggle. O wretched man that I am. Paul, Paul has just said, hey, the things I want to do, I'm not doing. And the things I don't want to do, I keep doing. And then he says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Like, struggling is part of the Christian experience. But Paul finds hope. Not in, in like, oh, I finally made it. But he finds hope in Jesus. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He throws himself on the mercy of God and he says, God, I'm, I'm still broken. Please help me. And at one point, Paul says, I die daily. There's this surrender that he does over and over again. Not that Jesus has ever left him but that he has to keep putting himself in Jesus' in, in Jesus' uh, hands and saying, I need you, God. I need you, God. I still need you, God. And did you notice in Revelation 14, these people that are on the mountain, like, it, it talks about movement. Where are they going? They're going wherever the Lamb goes because they know, I need you now, Jesus. I need you now. And I'd like to suggest that this is an experience of God's people throughout all eternity. There is never a point where we will say, I'm good now, thanks God, appreciate all you've done for me, I can handle it on my own now. Never will that ever be possible. We will always need to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. There's a lot of different places that we can take this subject about um, this no guile found in their mouth, uh, that they have the Father's name in their forehead, all these different things. There's all kinds of places we could go with this, but we're going to focus on the, the forehead part. We're going to look at the mind, because there's something about this Christian experience that it, it is centered in our mental faculties in our brain. Uh, the human brain is this incredible gift from God. It's like, um, well, a rudimentary example would be it's like a do you have a new computer or old computer? Anybody have an old computer? Yeah? Okay. Have you noticed that it's not as fast as it was when you first got it? My mom likes to do these things. Um, uh, she, she, well, used to. Now she has a Mac, so everything's better. But <laughs> she used to have um, these computers that she would, she would uh, slow down. Um, and, and you know there's different ways you can slow a computer down. You can pack it so full of stuff that the hard drive doesn't have room to read and write and move things around like it's supposed to, and so it gets really slow. Um, or you can try to put really like beefy software that requires lots and lots of resources on a little computer that doesn't have very many resources, and that makes it slow. Um, but uh, then there are these nefarious uh, people. Did you know that North Korea has one of the biggest hacking groups in the world. Of course, China has a big group of hackers, and so does Russia. Like, state-operated um, groups that are trying to do bad things. And then there's, there's just the teenagers that are 
playing around with coding and messing with malware and stuff. And, you, and so you get that email, and it looks pretty good, right? It looks like it's from Bank of America. So you click the link and you do your login, and, and uh, suddenly you've lost control of your bank account, right? Or um, there, there's something out of uh, India that, that has some weird character, but it looks like it's from the IRS, and so you click on the link, right? And then pretty soon you've got some malware on your computer, and your computer is being used by somebody off, off-site, not in your house, to do some bad thing. Or, or they've, they've done ransomware where they, they uh, hose your system. You can't access it all unless you pay them, right? They, there's people that really want to mess with you. And, and I think that's the same situation for our minds. Our minds are under attack. We have a problem with an outside force. Now, some people say that the brain is capable of handling some 20 quadrillion um, calculations a second. 20 quadrillion. That's a 2 with 16 zeros after it. And, and until recently, that was the most um, that, that people figured that, that uh, a computer could ever handle. Well, HP now has uh, the... Oh, I've written it down. It's called a... Uh, Oh, it's got a good name, El Capitan, that's what it's named. El Capitan, huge computer that HP has put together, and, and it can handle two um, quintillion calculations per second, so theoretically faster than the human brain by an order of magnitude. That's a two with 18 zeros after it. And, and when you look at that number, it doesn't make any sense. It, who cares, right? Uh, but think about it. A computer that's faster than the human brain still can't process a face and recognize who's walking through the door. But you and I can. Our brains are amazing. They're, they're infinitely cooler than any computer. And it's not just about how fast they process data, uh, because there's a limit to that. But there's so many other relational connections that God has given. Our brains are a marvel. And God has designed our brain uh, for amazing things, movement and sight and hearing and right, all kinds of different things. But uh, if somebody is deliberately trying to sabotage your brain, um, maybe you could put the idea of a virus, you know, maybe is somebody trying to insert a virus into our minds? And I would say yes, the Bible would, I think, uh, support that idea. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. And it says, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. You see this, this battle? It's about our brains. It's about our thoughts. It's about our beliefs. It's about our knowledge. And, and there is somebody, a group, a hacker group, that's really trying to get into our brains. The greatest battle in the universe, Revelation is telling us, the greatest battle in the universe is a battle for our minds. And what God wants is his name to be there. And what Satan wants is his name to be there. And we get to choose. And I think that's, that's an important distinction. We get to choose. It's not just something that happens to us. We get to choose. Satan can't control us. 
Well, there's a, a verse that uh, Paul talks about, Philippians, a letter to the Philippian church. Uh, he wrote this, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's any praise, think on these things. This is Paul's advice. This is how we get to choose where we're going to, which side we're going to be on, which side we allow our brains to be influenced by. And, and how do you protect the mind? You protect the mind by making sure you fill it with good things. And when you fill it with good things, the bad things can't be coming in. You have to choose. There's only so much bandwidth that you can put to your brain. And you, you get to choose what you're allowing to be inputted into your brain. If you, if you choose to go with a little bit of God, a little bit of the world, there's a problem the Bible tells us. It says that your brain will become unstable, like a computer that doesn't know where it's going or what it's doing next. It will become unstable. James 1.8 says, A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And Jesus says, No man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll hold to the one and despise the other. You can't serve two masters. You have to be of one mind. It'd be like dating two girls. Don't raise your hand, but have you ever done that? You, you don't get either one in the end. Because you can't, you can't love both at the same time and they not eventually find out and both kick you out. And, that, and that's kind of the problem, except a little different in our spiritual lives. When we are double-minded in spiritual uh, terms, we allow God to have a little bit of a foothold in our lives, but then we've got the world with a foothold in our lives. And, and you know what happens? We always kind of slide back to the world. We can't be double-minded. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 30, He who is not with me, is against me. It's like a, a natural thing, an automatic thing. We are, we are naturally, the Bible uses this word, carnally minded. Like, like uh, our, our minds tend towards bad things, towards evil. That's the, the tendency. And so we get to choose. Either we're following the lamb or we're letting the devil have his way in our lives. The lamb or the dragon. So... How do you become single-minded? How do you become focused on God? How do you do that? Um, I, it's not just a choice. Like, I choose you, God, and then I don't have to choose anymore. No, it's like, there's, there's a, a multitude of choices. Because there are daily opportunities for putting things into our minds. And every time we see something, hear something, taste something, smell something, right? Every time we touch something, we have an opportunity to put something into our minds. And we get to choose. What is it that we're going to allow into our minds? The first thing, I think, the principle um, that we need to exercise is faith. And that might sound vague, but let me give you a verse. 1 John 5, 4. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Um, anybody jump from an airplane? Hopefully with a parachute. <laughs> Few of you. I have not. I shouldn't have raised my hand. I don't really like the idea, to be honest with you. Parachutes are pretty flimsy. 
Have you seen those things? They're super thin. And the cords that come from those parachutes, they're not very thick either. And you're falling at what, 200 miles an hour or something like that? And you, and you expect that, that this, I don't know, 1,500 feet or 25, I don't know how, how far you pull that thing, but you, at some point you pull that thing and it's gonna slow you down from 200 miles an hour to you know something comfortable to, to drop on your feet. That's not something that I want to experience because I do not believe in this. I do not have faith in that parachute. And this is where faith really, the, the illustration really, um, I think, hits home. Faith is saying, I believe. And, and you can't just sit in the, in the airplane with your parachute on and repeat to yourself, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe. No, at some point you gotta jump out of the plane or you don't believe. And this is what faith is all about. God says, I've asked you to do this, and you say, I believe, Lord. Well, then jump out of the plane. Follow God. We can't, we can't successfully be single-minded unless we take a step towards God and then take another step in faith, saying, I believe you, I trust you, God. And the second thing is uh, garbage in, garbage out. Have you heard this phrase? If you put garbage into your computer, guess what the computer's going to spit out? It's, computers are pretty dumb, to be honest with you. They don't, they don't have any intelligence at all. This artificial intelligence thing is, is hogwash. There is no such thing. What computers have is input and output, and they can't output anything unless they get input, right? And what they get in will determine what they put out. And that's exactly how our brains work, too. Maybe a little more nuanced, we do have intelligence, but what we put into our brains eventually seeps out our pores and into our lives. Matthew, Jesus says this in Matthew 12, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. What we put into our minds is what comes out. At one point, um, people were arguing over food, and, uh, and Jesus says, hey, listen, don't be stressing about that. What matters is what's coming out of your heart. We might talk about food another time, but the, the point here is Jesus is saying our hearts. It's from our hearts that evil stuff happens. It's what comes out of a person that shows what's inside. And if you're putting the wrong things in, is it any wonder you're getting the wrong things out? Do you struggle? Are, are you in a, a battle that, that really is just a battle with yourself, or maybe with temptation from I don't know, evil angels or your neighbor down the road, I don't know. But there is, there's some kind of temptation in your life. The question you need to ask is, what are you putting into your mind? Why is this thing a problem in my life? What are you putting into your mind? I mean, let's just say um, you have that neighbor down the road, and there's a temptation, and, uh, and, and maybe they're, they're trying to entice you. And you know it's not the right thing. You know it's a bad deal. Uh, but um, if you've been watching the 18,000 hours of days of our lives, or every episode of Grey's Anatomy, what do you think you're going to be doing? 
in response to that temptation? What's the natural tendency of your mind going to be? To self-justify, to say, well, others are doing it, right? It's gonna, you're gonna tend towards the direction of the stuff you put in your mind. And, and what's, what's gonna happen if you get into some heated argument with somebody, and the major thing that you've been filling your mind with is that, you know, those Jean-Claude Van Damme movies where, you know, the first thing he does is raise his fists and do that fun kick thing, and, right? I never figured out how that worked, work, you know, spinning around. It just doesn't seem like it's that much control, but anyway. And then there's, you know, maybe, maybe you're not Jean-Claude Van Damme, maybe you're, you're like Steven Seagal, or maybe you're Matt Damon kind of material, but what you put into your mind is going to influence what comes out. And maybe in that heated argument, um, you stop using your reason, and you move to just what's imprinted, and your fists start flying. Your voice says things that just should never come out of your mouth. What goes in is going to eventually come out. And I'm not saying that, that we should completely you know, do away with media or something like that. Um, I'm not saying that. I'm not even saying that uh, that, that if you um, hear something once or twice that, that it's going to completely change who you are. No, it's like the stuff that you're pouring into your heart, into your mind, uh, the things that over time fill your head will ultimately come out. First John 2, John gives us this good advice. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He's saying, don't be double-minded. You can't love the world and pursue the world and dump the world into your mind and love God and pursue him. You're gonna end up defaulting to the world. And he continues, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Now notice these three things, three categories. He says, oh, and, and the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. All right, so these three categories, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, um, these are, are kind of big containers that hold lots and lots of stuff. Uh, and, and it's kind of the categories of problems, things that we dump into our minds. Think of your mind as like a a fortress, and it's got five gates, five doors, and it, this fortress has huge walls, impenetrable, impossible to get through, and, and these these doors are are barricaded and reinforced. Nobody can break through those doors unless you open them. Right? Think think about your mind in that scenario, and. When you think about these different facets, what are the doors to your mind? How, do you, how does stuff get in? Your senses, yeah. Your eyes, your ears, your nose and mouth, your touch. Right? These are the things that we allow into our, into our minds. And if there's a, a, uh, somebody that has malicious intent that's trying to get into your mind, how do you think they're going to try to get into your mind? It's through your eyes, through your ears, right? Through your senses. Uh, so we have some control. We have the ability to limit, to filter what comes into our minds. And we get to choose how we invest, like the kinds of things that we spend our time putting into our minds. These are the choices we get to make. 
In Proverbs 23, 12, the Bible encourages us to apply our hearts to instruction in your ears to the words of knowledge. Let's just think about the ears for a minute. Apply your ears to the words of knowledge. Or Proverbs 22, 17, incline your ear and hear the words of the wise and apply your heart to my knowledge. So according to the Bible, there's the ears are an important gate to your heart, an important doorway into your mind. What kinds of things does our culture try to get into our minds? Through the ears. We live in a pretty noisy world. We've got radio, we've got streaming devices, you know, earphones running down the, the, uh, the track, you know, people are always listening to something. If you were to just flip through the radio, I've done this not too long ago here in Bonner's Ferry, if you just flip through the radio and, and listen to whatever song is, is on, um, take a mental note. What's coming out of the radio? What are the kinds of things the culture is trying to put into our, our hearts? So it was a few years ago, uh, this would have been 2001 actually, and I was, at, uh, I was in college and I, I happened to take a semester off to hang out at a, a boarding Christian high school. And I was um, an assistant men's dean there. And I remember one night he put me in charge, which I didn't think made any sense, but whatever. So he put me in charge and, uh, and I'm supposed to make sure the guys, I don't know, don't do anything bad. So they, there is this rule at the school that something about music, I didn't really have a clear understanding of what it was, but you know, some music just wasn't appropriate. And, uh, and so I was just kind of going into different guys' rooms and chatting with them and seeing how their homework was going and stuff. And I, I happened in this one kid's room. He's a freshman, 14 years old, and he's got this music playing. And, uh, and so I'm curious, you know, what, what is this? So I sit down and I'm just listening with him because he's, he's just in, in, uh, enthralled with his music. And uh, so I'm, I'm sitting down and listening, and it happens to be Eminem. Have you heard Eminem before? At least heard the name? No? Um, you, okay, so it's probably better that you didn't hear about it. But anyway, um, he happens to be a white rapper, which at the time was a big deal, um, and he was really popular. So I'm just listening to this to this music and trying to get an idea of what he's saying because like rap kind of moves pretty quickly, and so I start to get this picture of what's going on. And in the song, his wife finds him in the shower with his neighbor, and by the end. One of these women, I couldn't figure out which one, ends up dead in the trunk. This is not good stuff. Now, it wasn't very long later, I was sitting next to this same young man in choir. And you know what this young man was doing? He had a, a thumbtack. And he's sitting there in, in, the, in, in the chair, and he's kind of hating life. That's just his standard mode. Um, and, and, uh, and he's stabbing his leg. With this, with this pushpin, pulling it out, stabbing it again, pulling it out, stabbing it again. I don't know if you've ever stabbed yourself with a pin. I can't imagine it being comfortable. It just doesn't seem like that's a good idea. There's something that's coming out of this young man that's a result of what's going in. And, I mean, if you listen, who's the good girl of pop, pop music? <laughs> is there such a thing? Taylor Swift is kind of this, you know, Disney girl kind of um, come onto the popular scene, and she's been changing the face of, of music and how monetization of, of music is, is working and stuff, and, and uh, people really uh, like her, apparently. Well, if you just listen to some of her songs, what's going on? 
Well, she's, she's talking about all the lovers that she's had and how she plays the game of love and how she's good at it. That's not really how God describes relationships. And so the, the good girl of pop culture isn't that good. She's taking the Lord's name in vain, which is against the commandments, and, and then a variety of other problems in her songs. And it's when we, when we are allowing those things into our minds, we start to kind of become not just desensitized to it, but, but we start to, to think that these things, these patterns of behaviors that we're hearing from pop culture are the kinds of things that are okay for us to do. And instead of filling our minds with good things, we fill our minds with things that the dragon would prefer that we think about. Has music gotten a lot better today than it used to? No. Not really. Have you ever been on YouTube and uh, one of those music videos pops up and, and you're just like, well, what, what did I just do, you know? There, there are sexualization and violence and, and just, it is not a good scene. Music doesn't tend to be good. There's this one, not too long ago, one song came out. A, a man is talking about his girlfriend and, and kind of encouraging her. And she's a stripper. And so he's encouraging her and saying, you know, I don't think of you as a hoe and go get your money, money, money. Greed, violence, profanity. I didn't make this up, by the way. I really didn't. Is, is this godly wisdom, or is this moral sewage? And when, when the sewer gets backed up, it is not pretty, guys. And some of the stuff that we're experiencing in our lives is because the sewer is backed up in our minds. Day in and day out, our minds are collecting stuff, filling, filing it away like a, a massive filing cabinet. And, and, and when we encounter something, we go back and we say, how do we process that? We, you know, our brains go through the filing cabinet and get examples from what we've been filling our minds with, the experiences that we have. Never forget that somebody is trying to fill that filing cabinet. They're trying to invade your mind. And, and you need to take some intentional control. Now, we can have this passive choice. You know, the passive choice that says, ah, it doesn't matter, whatever, whatever. Anything's fine. And that's a choice. And the devil takes every advantage of that and says, sure, I'll just dump what I want in. But if we are proactive, we can say, wait, let me think about this. What would I like in my mind? And what would I like to come out of my life? And that's when we get a huge change in our, in our hearts and in our minds. Did you know that music can unlock emotions and, and like nail ideas into your brain? You ever heard one of those uh, little ditties, uh, you know, like a McDonald's thing? Um, I don't even know them because I don't, there, there's, uh, commercials just are not interesting to me. So I, if I'm in a hotel room and I'm flipping through channels, as soon as I see a commercial, I flip the, the channel because I just don't care for it. But you know what I'm talking about, a little ditty that comes on and, and you know, it's McDonald's, I'm loving it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> right? There's things that you know, and, and all of those things are connected to some little song, some music, because it nails it into your, your subconscious. And, and then there's, uh, you go to the, the grocery store or the, the mall or whatever, and there's music playing. And you know they actually study buying behaviors and types of music and stuff? And you, 
are more likely to spend money with certain types of music. Music ends up going through the auditory nerve and impacting your um, hypothalamus, I think that's what it is, inner part of your brain. <laughs> and, and that's where your emotions are coming, you know? You're, you're oh, I feel bad, or oh, I feel nice, uh, or I feel like I need to get things done. Those things are impacted by, your, by music without your brain um, needing to process that and to decide what you want to do. And so it can, it can put ideas into your subconscious without you really processing them. Now, you do have a choice. You can say, as you're walking to the mall, wow, this music is really getting me kind of, uh, I don't know, irritated or whatever. And you can choose how you relate to it then. Your brain can interrupt what this music is, is doing. But that's important to notice. Music can impact you. Have you ever been depressed? I mean, just like, oh, my life sucks. I don't want to live, you know, today is going to be a terrible day. But then you listen to some peaceful, happy music, and your, your mind, without you even recognizing it, your mind just changes. There's a young man I was uh, friends with years ago, and he was listening to some pretty awful stuff. And uh, at one point he asked me, Jason, what do you think about this music? Do you think God cares what kind of music I listen to? And I, I asked him, how have you been feeling lately? He's like, oh, not very good. <laughs> Well, the music you're listening to, it's not, it's not uh, lending itself to happy thoughts. Do you think that might be impacting how you feel? He decided to change the kind of music he was listening to, and guess what? He was less depressed. His emotions were transformed because of the music that he listened to. Well, that's just one thing, your ears, one avenue into your mind. What about, um, what about uh, other types of things, like your eyes? Do you mind if I meddle with your Netflix account a bit? Uh, maybe you have cable TV still. Do people still have cable TV? <laughs> when we look at TV, it's not all bad. I'm not a Luddite. I don't think we should get rid of technology. Said it before, I'll say it again. Um, if you're like, oh, I gotta throw my TV out, please tell me where you throw it. I, I could use one. But that's not. The, the point isn't that, that uh, TV is bad or music is bad. The point is we get to choose what kinds of things we let into our mind. And uh, when, you watch a, when you watch a movie trailer, what are the kinds of things they typically are doing? They're, they're stimulating your funny bone. They want to make you laugh. They're tantalizing your lust. They, they want to grab your sexual desires. Or, or they're, they're uh, doing some big violent thing, you know, explosions and bloodiness and whatnot. Right? It's the, the stuff that draws us in. And honestly, when we go to a movie, when we watch something, you know, what are we, what, what are we looking for? What is that thing that, that, that really draws us in? Is it just a nice story? Well, Anna Green Gables, go for it, right? <laughs> or, or is it, are we really looking for that lust? that violence, right? There, there's something that draws our heart when we see those things. If we're honest, there's not a lot of difference between the Christians and the rest of the world when it comes to media. We're generally watching the same stuff. And, and the Bible says that the church in the last days, Revelation 3, is the Laodicean church. And the Laodicean church is like, yeah, we don't need anything. We're good, you know. 
spiritually wealthy and I'm clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And what God sees is naked people that are blind spiritually and poor. And I think that our experience in media has an impact on that. You want to have a rich experience with Jesus? Then stop watching those R-rated movies. There's a, a Christian conference, a Christian conference that happened back in the D.C. area, you know, before coronavirus. And uh, and, and it's this hotel with lots and lots of Christian men in it. You know, some three thousand people come to this conference, and so this hotel is packed with just Christians. And uh, somebody did a, a quick little research thing just to see what what uh, you know curiosity. And it happened to be some, more than 70% of those rooms had rented a pay-per-view X-rated movie. <laughs> In 2014, Barna uh, surveyed, and, and uh, they, they revealed that 77% of Christian men between the ages of 18 and 49 are currently watching pornography at a rate of once a month or more. 77% of Christian men. This is a big deal. Christian marriages are falling apart because of pornography. And, and they're falling apart at the same rate as the rest of the world. There's no difference between the marriage and, and divorce rates in the, in the church and outside the church. And it seems like a relationship that's based on a godly vow would last in a godly home, except we fill our minds with the world. And so what comes out is that, well, that's sewage. The same survey revealed that more than one-third of Christian men have not had an extramarital affair, one in three. We might not want to admit it, but the world around us will. They're calling Christians out, and they're saying, you're not practicing what you're preaching. And part of the problem is the stuff that we're feeding our brains. Listen to the decision that David made in Psalm 101. I will behave wisely in a perfect way. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. Now, first of all, you've got to know that David is David's the guy that struggled with pornography. David's the guy that struggled with... Uh, you know, extramarital affairs. Like, this is, this is a guy who's been in those shoes. And he's saying, that stuff that I put in my brain, I can't put it in my brain anymore. And, and now some of you might say, well, I can watch this, and it's, I'm not going to become violent just because I'm watching this violent show. Or I can listen to that, and I don't believe what they're saying. It's just interesting music, right? And we can, we can try, to, try to believe, anyway, that, that it doesn't impact us. But what David says, what the Bible says, is those things cling to you. They stick with you. By the age of 18, Nielsen, the TV research company, says that you have witnessed, the average person has witnessed 16,000 murders on TV. I mean, how many murders before TV did you witness in your life? Most people never, ever saw anybody get killed. But now with TV, suddenly, People are getting killed all the time. A few years ago, the University of Kansas did a, a research 
uh, and they found that the most popular show with kids 9 to 12 years old was Desperate Housewives. Doesn't seem to be age appropriate in my opinion. More than half of North American kids have a private TV in their bedrooms, uncensored by their parents. And what do you think those kids are watching? Do you think they're filtering the, the things that go through their mind effectively? They also found that kids that see sex on TV are twice as likely to try it out themselves at a young age. I mean, people can argue what they want. They're like, oh, it doesn't affect me. But the, the statistics, the data, the evidence from the Bible, from the world, demonstrates that it does. Garbage in, garbage out. There's something about amusement that's part of this story. Somebody once said that uh, we are amusing ourselves to death. Average TV watching time in the United States is some 20 hours a week. I mean, that's a, that's a good part-time job right there. 20 hours a week. We're living in a world that doesn't even exist. A fantasy world. While historians may disagree on the actual cause of the demise of the Roman Empire, one historian, um, he, Philip Meyer, suggests that this amusement thing had something to do with the moral decline of Rome. He says, almost from the beginning, the Roman stage was gross, and immorality was one of the main agencies to which must be attributed the undermining of the original sound moral life of the Roman society. So absorbed did the people become in the indecent representations of the stage that they lost all thought and care of the affairs of real life. And there are so many different entertainments that you could have in Rome. This is only one of them. When you look at, at social media, we've got friends online. You have these, these uh, relationships with TV characters. People uh, idolize them and you know have uh, fantasies about them and whatnot. It's not, it's not too far of a stretch to say that that kind of fantasy life is impacting our real life and keeping us, preventing us from having deep relationships and, and having healthy interactions with other people. So just, we, we looked at, at the ears, we looked at the eyes, there's one other one. Um, pride of life. And I would suggest this, and we're going to just touch on it briefly, but I would suggest this one's the big one. It, wasn't it somebody in heaven that experienced pride and it kind of got this whole ball rolling? Um, what is it, Isaiah 14? Lucifer, it says, For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, I will sit on the mount of the congregation of the farthest sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will be like the most high, I, 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 this focus on me. And it got Lucifer into big trouble. And according to Ezekiel, and forgive the mis mistype here, um, uh, this is Ezekiel 28.17, not Isaiah 14, but Ezekiel 28.17 says, Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. So focused on himself. I'm beautiful. I'm wonderful. I should... Dot, dot, dot. And after years of following the dragon's lead, it's no wonder that our society has so many problems. Uh, a narcissism is something that I care about a lot nowadays. Women in a relationship with a man that only cares about himself, using her, abusing her, it's a, a terrible life. And then you've got women who have the same problem, narcissism, 
and, uh, and their husbands suffer um, as a result of it. Um, bosses full of themselves, pride, focused on me. We take selfie photos more than we take photos of the world around us. You know, we, we've got a, a big focus in our lives on me. Have you heard of TikTok? It's okay. You don't need to hear of it. <laughs> TikTok is a social media platform where you post uh, little 15 to 30 second uh, little videos. And kids and young people are doing a lot of this. And, and you know what I see? Because I'm curious about how young people interact, right? So I'm, I'm, I flip through TikTok every once in a while, and some of this you, you just have to keep flipping. But you flip your little your your screen, and, and a new video shows up. And you flip it again, a new video shows up. And about one in three or four videos are some girl putting on makeup to some music, or some guy showing off his you know some um, muscular feet or something like this. It's about Pride. I want people to recognize me for who I, you know, for, for my skill or my beauty or my whatever. Um, of course, then they make fun of those. You've got uh, girls putting on makeup and saying how horrible it is that men require them to wear makeup to think they're beautiful. So um, it, it's a, an interesting exploration of the whole subject. But it's not, maybe you're not into TikTok, maybe you're not dieting so you can fit into a size 2 dress or a size 0 dress or whatever they are. Uh, maybe, maybe your problem is a little different. Maybe your focus in pride ends up being in, you know, wearing the nice clothes or driving the nice car or having the nice house or um, just paying more attention to what other people think of you than really you should. Notice what 2 Peter 3 says. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's eyes is very precious. Do you see where the focus is here? When our focus is on what, what do they think of me? What, what do they think of how I look or of what I drive? When our focus is there, then we miss what God really wants us to see. We miss that God's paying attention and that God cares about us. And you know what God cares about? It's not gold. I mean, he uses that for patience. It's not what we drive. Seriously, we'll be flying, right? He doesn't care about those things. What he cares about is his character in our hearts. And, and you know, we do too. When you look at somebody and you see the character of God in them, you know that, that, that they're different. And you, you want to be around that person. And God, he wants that in us. He wants his character reproduced in in us. You and I live in a world full of broken people, worried about what everybody else thinks, focused on themselves, focused on ourselves. We're part of those people, right? We live in a broken world. And so God says, listen, as Christians, I just want you to put all that stuff aside. Stop stressing about that. Quit trying to decorate the outside. Focus on the real issue, the stuff inside. Let me write my name in your forehead. Let me give you a different kind of adorning. You see this? It's not about the hair or the makeup or the clothes, right? It's not about that, but it's about the quiet and gentle spirit. You know what I'm talking about. You've seen somebody that has that quiet and gentle spirit, and you want it. Don't know how to get it, but you want it. And God wants to give it to you. 
You and I need, we need Jesus. We need to let him become the most attractive thing in our lives. We need to let him be the, the thing that we pursue, the, the, the one that we love to talk about and think about. We need to let him dominate our minds. Titus 2 says, Denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Looking for, this is the focus, this is where our eyes are, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. What we put into our minds matters. God's asking us to be different. He says, he says, fill your minds with the good things. If it's lovely, if it's joyful, if it's pure, right? Philippians 4, 8. Fill your minds with those things. Christians, people who follow Jesus, should be different. We should look a little different. Now, I'm not advocating for necessarily the plain clothes style, but have you seen the Mennonite community? There's something about the simplicity. They're not putting a bunch of gold adorning themselves with, with silver and whatnot. They're, they're not paying so much attention to the outside appearance. Now, I, I can't be a judge of the inside part, but I think they've got something right about the outside. It's not about what we wear. It's not about showing off. And I think we can go too far the other extreme, right? We can be so plain that we're showing off. You know what I mean. We can try to make sure everybody knows that we're we're simple and we live these godly lives. It's not about our heart anymore. It's just about what we wear. And that's, that's uh, two extremes that are really close together. What God wants is our hearts. He wants our hearts transformed. There was a man practicing on the pipe organ in a big church. And it was one of those big organs and he's, he's working really hard at this, uh, at this piece. And somebody comes in through the back door, and the guy, he's struggling, he's making all these mistakes, and, and he's like, oh, great, somebody, you know, I've got an audience now of all days, I don't need a spectator today. And so he, he's playing through the piece and making all these mistakes and frustrated with it, and, you know, starts over again and makes even more mistakes, and time is, is, is kind of, he's on a time crunch to get this thing figured out for the church. And uh, the stranger listens for a while, sits down and listens for a while, and, and at one point the organ falls silent, and uh, the organist um, seems a little, a little frustrated, and uh, the man in the, uh, in the pew says, do you mind if I ask, what are you playing? It's Mendelssohn, the organist snapped, and it's very complicated. Maybe I could help, the stranger said. The organist cackles, went up, and uh, he says, that's nice, but I don't think you understand. This is very hard piece, and if you don't mind, I could really use some quiet. And so the visitor just fell quiet. And um, after a little while, the man kept, kept playing, made it even worse. Didn't uh, didn't do that good of a job at it, and uh, he felt a little bad. And so he turned around. And he said, "I'm I'm sorry. It's just that I'm having a bad day." My name is John. Who are you? My name is Felix Mendelssohn. And, and I have this right back piece. Do you think I can help you? Jesus is the author. Not unlike a masterpiece on the organ. 
He's the author of your life. And sometimes we go about it trying to do our own thing, trying to figure it out ourselves, and we, we really mess it up. And to be honest, there's not a one of us in this room that hasn't messed it up. We all have, every single one of us. And what, what Jesus is doing is he's sitting pretty close, not so close that, that, that you'll be driven away, but, but pretty close, close enough that you can hear, and he's saying, can I help? Would you just let me into your life? And see the solution. The solution isn't just to filter things, you know. Oh, I'm not going to watch bad movies. I'm not going to listen to bad music. I'm not going to, you know, wear whatever. Like, you can't just not do things. You have to do something. And so God invites us to fill our lives with good things. With things that are beautiful, that he made, and that he designed. All these years, we've been trying to run our own lives trying to organize our own existence, trying to do it our own way. And, and Jesus is just saying, can I help? God is calling us to stand on that mountain, to be that 144,000 people, right? To be just like them, following the Lamb wherever he goes and having the Father's name in our forehead and having no deceit in our mouths. This is what God is calling us to be, and you and I can't do it. That's just the simple fact. So how do you get there? You say, God, I need your help. Jesus, please take over. Write your character in my mind. And if you read in Ezekiel chapter 36, you'll find that God says, if you just let me, I promise I will. I will. I will give you a new heart. I'll take that hard, self-determined, prideful heart out. And I'll give you a soft heart that's moldable by me. And I'll write my law in there. I'll write my character there. And I'll make you like me. And you'll do what I would like you to do. You'll walk in my ways, he says. It's when we surrender to him, when we say yes to him, and no to the dragon. Father in heaven, we all have this sense that there's more to this life than what we can find on our own. We're not just punching the clock till we're, till we're dead. We know there's something more. We're born into this world with a sense that our lives are supposed to mean something. And tonight we can see in the pages of your word that a life lived knowing you, a life lived following the Lamb of God is the only way that we'll ever know what it means to truly be human. And we admit we've tried thousands of times to do it on our own. And all it gets us is a mess. And so tonight, we're thankful there's an alternative. And we're sitting here, and we're saying, yes, Lord, we want you to run our lives. If you'd like to say yes to Jesus tonight, please just raise your hand. Everybody's eyes are closed, even mine. Only the angels and God can see. Raise your hand and say, yes, God, I want you to run my life. I want to fill my life with you. Our prayer, God, is that you live in us and through us. And we pray this in Jesus' name.